Hey everyone, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast, where we talk about literally everything Kubernetes related from clouds to on-prem, for infrastructure engineers and developers, and literally everything in between. My name is Michael Levan, and I'm joined today with Jeff Smith, who's a director of ops at Centro. Jeff, what's up, man? How are you? Good, good. How you doing? Um, oh, quick correction too. Sorry about that. Basis Technologies, we rebranded. <laughs> Basis Technologies. All right, cool. <laughs> so for everybody that's listening, that's uh, we're 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 doing a little bit of rebranding there on the fly. So. Yeah, right on the fly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm awesome. still getting used to the new name. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you know, funny enough, because I was on your Twitter and I clicked on like where it says at Centro, and it was like this account doesn't exist, and now I guess I know why. <laughs> oh, see, now I got some homework work to do <laughs> <laughs> awesome man so <clears throat> we uh we, we we caught up uh i don't know maybe a month or so ago and we were talking about you know kubernetes you know for for your team and stuff and that's that's i think that's where we came up with the idea for the this episode of you know the kubernetes impact for teams uh so i imagine that you have a, a ton of stuff to talk about in this space uh but one one question that i always kick off for everybody just to get the ball rolling is what exactly do you do in the Kubernetes space? Yeah, so we are, you know, primarily just consumers of Kubernetes. We're not, you know, contributing to um, any large projects or anything like that at this uh, at this point. Uh, we're really looking at uh, Kubernetes as, you know, an enablement vehicle to empower developers, um, product owners, things like that, to you know, really sort of move fast. Um, so we are in the process of basically transitioning our EC2-based workflows um, into more container and specifically Kubernetes-based workflows. And it's really starting to alter the way we look at how infrastructure is managed and, you know, the sort of scope and set of responsibilities that different teams have. Um, and, you know, it's been an interesting, you know, push-pull give and take uh, scenario, but, you know, we're, we're working through it piece by piece. So as it stands now, we're really just, you know, sort of consumers of the technology. We're trying to get um, a little bit more involved in the community um, and, uh, you know, just, just, you know, really enjoying, you know, playing around with, you know, some of this new technology. Yeah. So it's actually interesting that you, uh, you brought up the infrastructure piece. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said something that I really enjoyed Kubernetes is a way to manage your infrastructure with an API. Yeah. And that really resonated with me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, I think that's a, a sort of a great way to describe it. And um, I think, you know, being able to the you know, the idea of containers has always been, you know, fantastic, right. This sort of self-contained uh, deployable that has everything that you need now being able to, to be able to stitch those things together through, um, you know, Kubernetes manifest um, and to really like, you know, build out the application and to have this sort of, this sort of, you know, YAML based representation of the application um, in its various uh, states from development to staging to production, I think is incredibly powerful because that for a long time was sort of, you know, behind, I don't want to say like a, a brick wall necessarily, you know, we, we were able to share a lot of our Terraform code and things like that for EC2 based workflows, but it, it's much more concrete um, in a Kubernetes manifest. And then, you know, it, with the APIs, it really just sort of opens up the possibilities that, that you can do. And, and it's going to enable, you know, new methods of work that we maybe hadn't considered previously. So, um, you know, the fact that it, it, it really does have a, a strong API is, is pretty exciting. Yeah. So I, that totally makes sense. I mean, the, the ability to 
have an API to manage everything, the ability to have the ability to create operators and have a controller there to be able to specify exactly what you want to do in your infrastructure. I mean, that's, I would say that's definitely a big deal, like especially for teams implementing Kubernetes. And speaking of teams, uh, another conversation, uh, another conversation that I had recently was, I feel like, you know, a lot of people are implementing Kubernetes because they want to orchestrate containers, obviously, but once they get down to it, they start to realize there's a few other pieces there. Uh, you know, hey, I need an ops person to be able to do this. Hey, I need somebody in networking to be able to take care of my services and my ingress and my service mesh. Hey, I need somebody to look at my RBAC policies uh, and, 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 you know, everything from a cluster perspective. So before you know it, you kind of have like a whole IT team working in <laughs> maybe some type of like high velocity team, right? You got one security person. You got one QA person, you got one dev, you got one SRE. Are, are you kind of like seeing or, or feeling uh, something similar? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we're definitely seeing something similar. Um, I, I think what the what Kubernetes has a, a allowed us to do and empowered us to do is to be able to really separate the platform from the set of applications, right? So as my team is starting to get more involved with Kubernetes, we're really starting to, so previously we were much more involved with um, the infrastructure and the application that the that was being run on the infrastructure. We were way more involved, um, almost detrimentally in, in some areas where there needed to be coordination for different types of changes. Perfect example is like, because of the way our passenger environment is set up, when they wanna upgrade Rails or Ruby, on the application, there's this sort of coordinated dance that has to happen because we've got to change infrastructure to match it. Um, with Kubernetes, we've been able to really start to abstract away um, that relationship so that we are dealing with the infrastructure of Kubernetes, period, right? We're not worried about the applications or necessarily what's running on top of it. We're able to say like, hey, we're concerned with the health of the cluster, with uh, failover nodes expanding, things like that. But, you know, we're not so much involved with the application. But now that creates this sort of gap, right? Um, because that is expertise that we typically had that has to go somewhere. So we're seeing development teams sort of um, spring up to fill that gap and specifically start talking about um, things like development experience, um, uh, creating tools to sort of streamline uh, the creation and management of their uh, Kubernetes applications. Um, so we are starting to see like this sort of, not just, a, a not just this growth of an additional team, but also sort of like almost a duplication of skills in a way, because now these development teams see, oh, we're going to need someone that understands networking a little bit more because that's going to be on us. We need someone that understands infrastructure a bit more because some of that's going to be on us. Um, so we're still early days. We have one particular team at Basis that uh, specifically is spinning up to sort of handle this developer experience. Um, and uh, we're, my ops team and, and uh, this developer experience team have, have partnered and are working closely together. So it'll be interesting to see where the lines sort of get drawn over time. I, I think something really interesting there too is like, you know, originally when, when this whole DevOps movement thing came out, it was about, you know, breaking these silos and what ended up happening is we didn't break any silos and we just created more silos with DevOps <laughs> teams. But with, with what you're describing with Kubernetes, 
it's actually breaking silos. So maybe Kubernetes is helping break, actually break those silos. Because like you said, the dev teams are looking at the networking pieces of Kubernetes and they're like, oh, we actually need somebody that understands networking. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and for us, it becomes, the goal becomes not necessarily to, how do I describe this? So now one of the things that we're focused on is how do we automatically detect things that are not, uh, let's say the best way to implement a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and how do we break down our response to that, right? So there's a couple different uh, methods that we're sort of approaching, right? Like, you know, you've got the runtime environment scanning that we're gonna do constantly. You've got build time scanning that you're gonna do where you basically say like, you know, hey, this manifest has a, has a configuration that we just do not approve of and it's a hard stop. You can't go any further, right? The build process fails. Then you've got other things where it's like, okay, this isn't ideal, but we could see a scenario where people might need to do this. So we're not gonna stop your process, but we are gonna flag it, right? So that someone else can follow up and have a conversation to understand like, okay, why exactly do we need SSH running in a container? Right? <laughs> um, you know, like, let's have that conversation. We don't wanna stop you because there's, you know, potentially reasons why you may need to do that, right? But we still wanna know about it. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see uh, how Kubernetes is, like you said, breaking down silos and then also changing the nature of the relationship between dev and ops so that we aren't necessarily the group that is just like everything has to come through us and, you know, everything absolutely positively has to um, be up to snuff the way we would see it, right? Now we're saying like, okay, we recognize that because Kubernetes empowers people to move quickly um there may be use cases that we hadn't thought of and we don't want to necessarily prevent that experimentation but we need to at least know about it and be able to ask questions when it happens yeah and that's awesome because essentially what you're doing is you're breaking that red uh, that red tape i mean i still feel i i hear all the time where you know a team can't do this or a team can't implement that or this person doesn't have access to this or that and you know, then you got to go to the security team or this and that. You got to wait weeks. Then you get a responsive no. Then you got to go back, right? So it's like there's no conversation happening in a lot of organizations. So it's definitely awesome to hear that you know you're breaking those silos, you're breaking that red tape, all that stuff. And you know, funny enough, I I don't know, maybe uh, maybe we all needed the level of complexity that is Kubernetes to actually break <laughs> these silos. I don't know. <laughs> cool. So. You mentioned, uh, you know, that, you know, the ability to help teams go faster and all of that good stuff. So since you've kind of started to implement uh, this way of working and, and working with Kubernetes and stuff in general, like from a technology and from a mindset perspective, do you feel that you're moving faster at this point? Or do you feel that, you know, everybody's still trying to pull in the reins and, and you know, figure out what's going on? I think we're definitely at this point still sort of figuring things out, right? Um Kubernetes has enabled us to bring disparate systems together in a way that wasn't possible previously. So um, I'll give you an example. So at Basis, you know, we've had a number of like, you know, acquisitions. So as a result, we've got a few different technology silos. We essentially have like four different ops teams um, and those teams operate, you know, slightly different slightly differently. Um, one of which, one of the reasons for that is um, only two of the ops teams are in AWS. Uh, the other two are in 
the data center, right? So you just have a capabilities issue. Um, what Kubernetes has allowed us to do is it has allowed us to bring together the sort of dynamic programmatic infrastructure workflows with some of the things that are currently sort of static in the data center by containerizing some of these technologies, um, even if it's just for testing purposes, and then running them all um, in a Kubernetes environment. So it's enabling us to test and to develop in ways that we hadn't done before. Um, but with that has come like a lot of growing pains and a lot of learning and a lot of, um, uh, I guess the biggest thing, a lot of um, translation, right? So these applications are not running in Kubernetes or even in containers in production, right? So what is the mechanism to make sure that when a change in production happens, that that gets backported and filled into the uh, container slash Kubernetes implementation of it. Um, so we're, we're still figuring out some of those things and, and dealing with some of those growing pains. Um, so I, I fully expect as we iron those things out, the speed to sort of come. Um, and, and we're still seeing that in some areas too with our proof of concept cluster where someone says, you know, oh, I wanna run a quick spike on this, you know, aerospike project. Oh, look, I didn't realize that we've got this Kubernetes cluster. I can deploy, you know, five instances of these pods and experiment with this and see if this is going to be valuable or not. Um, that's extremely powerful because previously what that would require is um, someone would have to make a request. That request would have to get, you know, prioritized. Then we'd have to build the infrastructure for it. But of course, we're an infrastructure as code first company. So it's not like we're just going to spin up five instances. We're going to write a bunch of Terraform code around it. And that, you know, could take a week and a half, two weeks, right? Now someone can just say, oh, I'm going to download a Helm chart and I'm going to deploy this on the proof of concept cluster. And guess what, right? In 45 minutes, I can determine like, you know what? This is worth exploring. Or you know what? This isn't worth going any further because it's not going to meet criteria X, Y, or Z. Uh, and their developers are able to do that on their own. So that's extremely um, powerful. And uh, even though it may not necessarily translate into faster feature development, it does translate into you know uh, better productivity and a sort of appetite for experimentation. Yeah, so thank you so much for explaining that because I think there were, there were obviously a ton of crucial things that you said in there. And one of the things that I want to bring up is the fact that you know, your team and yourself and everybody are, are still figuring out what where Kubernetes is going to fit. And I feel like that's super crucial for everybody that's listening, because I, how can I put it? Tech marketing is very powerful in today's world. Uh, and, what, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what tech marketing tells us is Kubernetes is super easy and everybody's implementing it and everybody's on this path and you should be too. That's not reality. The reality right. is, is that I would say 70 to 80% of organizations out there are still trying to figure out Kubernetes. Like they're still trying to figure out where it's going to fit. They're still trying to figure out if it's going to work. They're still very much in the dev stage of Kubernetes and things aren't even in production. So thank you so much for sharing that because I, I like I said, I think it's very, very important for everybody to realize you're not you're not behind you're not getting left behind everybody's still trying to figure this out kubernetes hasn't even been public for a decade yet like we're still very new uh things are still changing every day so yeah i mean i think that's super crucial and another thing that i wanted to highlight was 
exactly like you said, when people want to test applications, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, what did you have to do? Well, like you said, you had to go and you had to make a request and then somebody either had to write some code or do it manually. That means they had to log into ESXi and they had to get a license or for a Windows workstation or they had to pull a Linux distro. Then they had to deploy it. Then they had to make sure it was secure. Then they had to make sure the networking was right. Then they had to make sure all the packages were up to date. And finally, the developer gets the machine and you know, then they're finally able to figure out if the application that they just wrote is going to work or not. Right. Now, like you don't have to do that. You just spin up Minikube or you just spin up Docker desktop or you spin up um, OpenShift ready containers or like whatever you want to do locally, you deploy your code. Hey, does it work? Great. Cool. Let's keep it moving. Um, and that's, that's obviously an, an incredibly, how can I put it? We're at a, like a very exciting time in technology right now. Um, and I feel like we've we've uh, been saying that every every two years, right? We're like, we're at a really exciting time. But we actually are really at an exciting time. <laughs> right. We mean it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> do you, do you kind of see, you know, uh, a place for Kubernetes more instead of like serverless or like do you kind of see a place for both of them uh i don't i don't know what you what you've done in the serverless space but like just just you know the the theoretical knowledge of it like do you kind of see kubernetes like replacing serverless for teams or do you kind of see uh teams using both serverless and kubernetes i could see teams using both i i haven't done a ton with serverless as it relates to applications, right? I've done, you know, we've done, we've got some serverless stuff that is basically, you know, time-based or event-based, but uh, you know, nothing that is like, you know, a, a taking part in a larger user-based application. Um, I think, uh, I think there, there are a few projects out there that basically allow you to replicate serverless, um, serverless technology in Kubernetes, right? So. You know, I see that those things gaining traction, um, but I think there's something magical about Kubernetes being able to occupy both spaces because there are some limitations to you know the sort of sort of serverless architecture, right? Um, and I feel like Kubernetes can deliver both. You know, um, if with with a little bit of effort, you can you can very much make it behave like serverless, right? And with some automation. Um, around it, your your developers and engineers can interact with it um, very similarly. But you know, if you need to run something thicker, right, uh, you can still do that uh, in Kubernetes. So I've never really been like a huge proponent of like you know the the serverless architecture. Um, so I'm I'm a bit biased, um, specifically around like you know these cloud provided. Um, serverless things, right? The other thing about Kubernetes is, is um, if you run serverless on Kubernetes, the pricing mechanism becomes make, much more understandable, right? Where I've just heard so many horror stories about serverless invocations going crazy, and then you have some insane bill. Um, and I would never want to be in a scenario where I am architecting my application in such a way to accommodate how often a function gets invoked in order to manage the bill, if that makes sense. Um, and I feel like serverless technology really 
really allows you to quickly lose control over your spend on your application. <laughs> yep. No, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, I, I don't know if it's right or not, but the, the serverless and Kubernetes thing, I think it's called OpenFAS, right? F-A-A-S, something like that. That sounds familiar, yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely a very interesting movement. And, and you're absolutely right. Like, I, I haven't done too much from an application standpoint with serverless, but I have done a bunch with, like, automation. So, for example, let's say uh, an EC2 instance is running and it gets shut down or whatever for whatever reason like i've written some python code in a aws lambda function to scan for that and if it happens you know restart the server or something like that exactly um, yep yeah yeah but i i think the thing for me and the reason why i think kubernetes is better for teams in general is because the reality is is that like hybrid cloud and multi-cloud is a thing right now and i don't like vendor lock-in and if you're using something like aws lambda or azure functions or whatever great services right but you're kind of like locked in whereas with right. kubernetes let's say you know you deploy in aks and you decide oh i actually want to use eks instead or gke well you already wrote all your manifests like really all you got to do is just deploy everything again <laughs> right going into a different cluster you know like whereas with something like serverless or like aws land like you're kind of like stuck almost because there's certain like handlers that you have to use there's certain live there's certain ways to implement libraries so it's yeah it, it kind of ends up being a pain i think for teams if you want to branch out into that multi-cloud or hybrid cloud scenario yeah, I think portability is a is a is a big part of it, and you know that's not, that's not to say that I'm you know I'm not big on like multi cloud by any means, but uh, so I'll give you an example. In when we first started talking about doing Kubernetes, part of my nefarious plan, um, if any of my coworkers are listening to this, they're going to be like, "Oh my goodness, you monster!" <laughs> um, but part of my nefarious plan was if I could do all of this automation and I made sure all this automation targeted the Kubernetes API, I could theoretically with Outpost drop an EKS cluster in the data center and then start migrating some of the data center workload to Kubernetes, right? right? And now my, my, my sister ops teams can take advantage of all of the automation that my teams have already written because they're targeting the Kubernetes API, right? But now we're able to um, have that infrastructure in the data center, so that we're they're not worried about things like, um, you know, like the one of the, the apps in the data center have like high latency requirements. Um, so there's always been concerns about latency in the cloud, right? But if I'm dropping an EKS cluster in the data center, I can eliminate a lot of those risks, a lot of those concerns, and now that opens us up to experimentation, right? And because the portability of Kubernetes is just um, is so fantastic, right? Like I don't have to redo a ton of things as long as I've been careful in how I go about targeting my automation and targeting the Kubernetes API. So, um, you know, for me, you know, that, that sort of portability is great. And, and then, you know, something else we had sort of touched on before is the ability to sort of recreate a lot of these environments um, locally on Minikube. So when we started doing this implementation, we said, we are going to try our best to move these configurations through the pipeline, starting with development. 
starting with local development, not worrying about like what production is going to look like, starting with local development, and then making the necessary changes as we move through local development to integration to staging to production, with the idea being everything should be able to be run and recreated on the local workstation. And that's incredibly powerful um, because it gives people a better insight into how things are running in production, right? When you can use the same deploy scripts on your local workstation that we use in production, you know, that, that gives you a level of um, insight and, and comfortableness with the infrastructure uh, that just wasn't really possible in EC2-based workflows, right? Because you're not going to do an EC2-based deploy process locally. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and and I think the other thing too there is like, it's so much easier nowadays to learn what needs to be done in production. And to your point, people can just deploy locally and see what's going to happen. Five, 10 years ago, if you wanted to do that, what did you have to do? Well, you had to go on eBay or Craigslist. You had to find somebody that was selling a server for cheap. You had to get that server in your house. You had to spin it up. And then you had to put ESXi on a USB, pop that in, install <laughs> that. And then, and then finally you had some type of home lab that you could attempt to run, you know, and, and play around with and learn your workloads. Uh, whereas now it's like, no, just run Docker desktop and deploy your stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. The home lab was a big thing, you know, for a lot of people, right? Like I, you know, I definitely had one, you know, now my home lab can be my laptop or, you know, or a couple servers in the cloud that I paid by the hour for. <laughs> exactly. So true. Yep. Yep. So two more questions for you and then we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up. And, and these are, I think my favorite questions. Do you think that in your opinion, because uh, you're on the ops side, right? Do you think that Kubernetes is more geared towards ops, dev, or both? <sighs> it's a tough one, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. I, I have to say geared towards ops, but I'm going to couch that. I'm going to caveat that, right? Um, so... When we talk about developers, especially in the Kubernetes space, we tend to think about the types of developers and hackers that would work at a Google or an Apple, right? These developers that are interested in all aspects of computing. Um, and I just don't believe that that's the majority of developers. I believe there's a large, large, large swath of developers that just like coding. And they're not particularly interested in infrastructure stuff, right? Um, the infrastructure stuff is a means to an end, right? Like, like I need to get it deployed uh, and I'm gonna figure out whatever I gotta do to get it deployed. But after that, they're not really interested or worried about optimizing that. Um, they're not necessarily interested in um, making sure it's the most secure, right? Because it's just it's just not the thing that they that they really want to be doing. They don't want to operate the applications. They want to develop them. And I feel like Kubernetes, um, Kubernetes has a lot of ways in which you can make your situation pretty bad. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, templates, Helm charts, things like that um, help to sort of abstract that away. But all of these tools are basically 
empowering developers to know less about the infrastructure while at the same time making them responsible for it (laughs) if that makes sense right so um so from that perspective i feel like it really it feels like it's geared towards ops because it takes all of these concepts and issues and problems that we've been trying to solve for decades and puts it in a nice tight package and does so in a way that piques our interest, our curiosity, and allows us to dig deeper. Um, whereas with developers, it allows them to deliver something quickly without necessarily understanding all of the nuanced implications. So in a way, I feel that Kubernetes can be dangerous um, if you are not aware of the types of developers you have. And this is not to poo-poo developers that aren't into infrastructure stuff, right? That's not the case at all. Um, But I think you need to understand like what people are interested in right? Because human nature dictates if it's something that they're not interested in, they're not going to spend a ton of time understanding it. I had a, um, when we were doing interviews with, um, with engineers uh, trying to figure out what our infrastructure platform needs to look like. um, I remember we spoke with one engineer and he was like, listen, I don't care about any of this stuff. I want to be able to point you to a repository with my code in it. And I want you to build an environment period. Right. Right. Like that's all I care about. Right. I don't want to know about these flags. I don't need all these options. I I, I don't want to have to build an RPM, you know, invert the right. I want to say, there's my code. You build an environment that represents production um, out of that. And that was a very honest, you know, open way to think about it. And we were like, wow, you know, I mean, we're where we've got all these assumptions about what engineers universally care about, uh, only to find out that it, it's not a universal thing at all. So, you know, all that is a sort of long-winded way to say, I think it's more geared towards ops. I think it can be dangerous if we just assume engineers, developers have a um, interest and or preference to learn about this stuff. And it can be, it, it can be a, a real easy way to expose yourself to some harm because um, someone is just looking for the quickest way to get their stuff out into production. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree with you 100%. I I like to think that Docker and containerization was built for developers and Kubernetes was built for operations. Because if you look at just what Kubernetes actually is underneath the hood, it's managing your infrastructure with an API. It's, you know, there's a lot of networking, there's a lot of storage, there's a lot of scaling, there's a lot of vertical scaling and horizontal scaling, there's a lot of cluster management. So yeah, I... I definitely typically feel the same way so totally totally makes sense and one more for you and then we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up so you know as somebody who's actively implementing kubernetes maybe you know list off two three tips that you have for production level teams that are doing the same thing that you are um so i guess the first thing i would list off is to have a philosophy um and what i mean by that is there are a lot of Kubernetes tools out there, right? There's a, there's a lot of stuff. And I think you will drive yourself insane if you keep reaching on, off, on the shelf for different tools, right? For different things. Like you, you'll see something like, oh, this solves this problem. Oh, but this solves this problem. 
Um, and I think that can become uh, pretty unruly. So, you know, I would say for starters, when you're going into it, have a philosophy about how you're going to go about approaching the Kubernetes ecosystem. Um, now, what, what this means uh, in practice is that there are some problems that you are going to solve suboptimally, right? Um, because the other solution that you chose is optimizing for a different thing. Um, and I think in technology specifically, we have this sort of belief that we can we can solve all the trade-offs, right? Um, and by doing that, we end up bringing in 30 and 40 tools, right? It, it's almost like medicine where it's like, here, you're going to take this pill to deal with your high blood pressure, but then that's going to create a scenario where you've got um, headaches. So we're going to give you this pill, but then because of the headache, right? You just keep doing that. It's the same thing with technology, right? We're, we're, we're going to implement this tool, but then this tool doesn't do this well. So we'll implement this tool on top of that. And then that tool that, right? You're just going to have to accept that some things are going to be done suboptimally, but you're focused on solving your major problems. Yep. Before you know it, uh, you, you look at your infrastructure two years later and there's more duct tape than there is solution. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the other thing I would, I would say is make sure you have a firm, honest, and clear conversation about the scope of responsibilities um, for uh, applications um, because people go into Kubernetes with different thought processes in mind, right? So development may be thinking like, yes, now I'll be able to launch whatever application I need to without interacting with ops. Um, and, you know, that, that may not be the way ops is looking at it, right? <laughs> um, ops <laughs> might be looking at it slightly differently. Uh, so it's good to have a, a, a very honest, detailed conversation about the support responsibilities and how you're going to go about introducing new technology. Because that's the other thing. Let's say you do open up, a, you do create a world where, you know, developers are sort of empowered to launch these things on their own. Do you as an organization want to just have this sort of influx of new technologies, right? Someone's like, oh yeah, we've never run CockroachDB here before, but you know, I'm going to bring it into the organization. Right, um, and it's great that this one team is using it, but it, that, that that team is still part of a whole. So, as an organization, how do we want to make sure that we're being diligent about the technologies that we bring in? Maybe you don't care, right? But if you're a smaller organization, I'm I'm going to guess that like you know you kind of want to rally around one relational database. You want to kind of rally around one NoSQL database, and you you want to have a a process for for handling those exceptions so that when new technology comes in, everyone is sort of aware of it. I think with Kubernetes, it becomes really easy to, you know, slip in this brand new shiny technology, um, you know, just by specifying the correct uh, pod name in a manifest or the correct container name in a manifest. Um, <laughs> yep. So, you know, make sure you've got uh, controls and processes around that. And then third is uh, make sure you've got a plan for scanning the runtime environment. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can you can stop at build time, but there's going to be a bunch of stuff that you're going to need to to be aware of, like what is going on in the actual running production environment, because there's going to be things that you didn't account for that you don't stop in the build process, um, and it makes its way to production. So how do you identify that stuff and raise it 
uh, to have that conversation to say like, you know, hey, why are we running cockroach DB suddenly? <laughs> um, right. Where did that come from? Um, and who, who made that decision? Uh, so it's real easy to think that you're going to stop everything before it gets to production. But in reality, there's always stuff that slips through. So you got to have uh, some process for being able to pick that up at runtime. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you could scan, you know, maybe with like check off or whatever other tool during your CI process. And then once it's deployed, maybe you have something, you know, like OpenShift ACS or something like that, like constantly scanning. And then maybe in the middle somewhere is where you have, you know, something like Artifactory X-Ray to, you know, scan your container images if they're stored in, in Artifactory. So yeah, there's there's definitely like, I would say three to four different places that you can do that scanning. And I absolutely agree with you 100%. Uh, I was just telling uh, somebody recently that like that should be your base. Like your base should be to implement those things like right away. Like that should be day one. So, yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Um, because like, you know, once the, once the cat's out the bag, it's so easy to, to postpone it. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's gotta be one of those phase one things. Like, you know, we gotta have this capability day one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, and for the love of God, spend money, right? Like <laughs> don't, don't go writing this stuff yourself if you don't have to, right? Like if yeah. you got to write a check, do it right. But you are, you know, this is undifferentiated heavy lifting. So, uh, no, so true. It's so true. Like I, I see a lot of people trying to create homemade solutions because they don't have the funds or they can't get the money for whatever reason. And then like two years later, it's like, uh oh, we need to fix this. And it's like, yeah, you need to buy something. I, right. I, I'm a huge proponent of that too. Like I think in the, in the early stages and even in the middle of my career, I was always like, yeah, let me just build a homegrown solution to figure this out uh, just because it's going to be fun, right? But right. now I'm like, uh, I don't know. Is there something that already exists for that? Or do I just want to make something cool? And am I going to am I gonna reinvent the wheel? Exactly. And, and like, you know, you can't be surprised that the tool that you wrote in three weeks isn't as good as the tools out there in a two-billion dollar industry, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, oh, man, I really thought I was going to be able to cobble together a bunch of bash scripts to make this work. But, you know... <laughs> who knew it's an actual hard problem <laughs> exactly it's so funny that you say that because i see that all the time you know like i feel like for my own personal stuff like when i'm labbing things i'm like oh, i'm gonna build a solution myself it's gonna be really cool but when i'm like you know consulting and stuff i'm like just just buy it let's let's not go down this path right right <laughs> just 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 buy it right like exactly. just 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 do it right right <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, at this point, I would love it if you, you know, plugged something like your book. And I know it would be awesome to see where people can can find you on the socials. Yeah, so uh, I wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Operations Anti-Patterns DevOps Solutions. Uh, you can find that on Amazon or with Manning Publishing. Um, I've got a website, uh, attainabledevops.com. Um, so you can uh, find me there. I'm on Twitter uh, as uh, Dark and Nerdy. And I've actually started taking to uh, blogging on Medium quite a bit more. So I've got a, uh, uh, a weekly series of posts that are, you know, some technical, some leadership, um, you know, some random slice of life stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it's been fun, you know, getting back into the habit of uh, writing on a regular basis and, you know, just sort of sharing knowledge, sharing expertise, or even just, you know, posing odd questions. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, for everybody that's listening, please uh, go take a look at what Jeff's doing. You know, he has a combination of leadership experience and engineering technical experience. So, you know, if you, if you want to learn any of those paths, he's the guy to go to. 
Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thanks. Had a good time, man. Yeah.